Good morning, everyone. Welcome to NSPS Radio Hour on this lovely, I guess it's not, it's not quite winter yet, or maybe it is winter. I, I can't keep up with whether it's winter or not. But nonetheless, I'm pleased to have with me today Mr. Ken Allred. Thanks for joining me, Ken. Uh, yeah, glad to be here, uh, Kurt, and certainly it's winter in northern Alberta. <laughs> yeah, you were telling me when before we came on that you were experiencing some snow there today, and which is a departure from here in the D.C. area. We're like 60-some degrees, I think. But wishing we had snow, I suppose. We'll send you some. <laughs> yeah, I get you. You probably get tired of it at some point. But um, just I don't know if you get our newsletter or not. But what I wrote in the newsletter for this last week, I always enter in the newsletter who's going to be my guest. So the first line of what I wrote was, "The Boundary Hunter will join host Kirk Sumner to share his expenses, his experiences." Um, so I'm I'm sure that sparked a lot of interest in in people's minds. Um, I think I may have told you when we were having our conversation, when, when my wife saw your card, her first reaction was, why does this guy's card say Bounty Hunter? <laughs> I said it doesn't say Bounty Hunter. It says Boundary Hunter. <laughs> but uh, that was kind of an intriguing thing to have on the card, and I wanted to maybe talk with you a little bit about how that all came about. But before we do that, I, I get a little bit of an introduction for Ken. I don't recall the first time we met, Ken. It's been some time ago, and I don't remember if it was a conference out west somewhere, maybe Montana or someplace. It could have been an FIG meeting, for all I know. Um, I but I think it was in Hong Kong, and uh, the FIG meeting in, oh, about 2005, probably. Yeah, I, know, I remember seeing you in Hong Kong. I just couldn't remember if that was our first meeting or if I had met you at one of the, the state conferences somewhere. But, um, yeah, that was... Uh, certainly an interesting conference, and I don't know if, if I've actually spoken to you about uh, the, the idea that's been floating around among some of our folks of trying to uh, entertain the FIG Congress here in, uh, in 2000, uh, 2022. You know, well, the last one we did here was in 2002 in Washington, and you know John Hohall, of course, and uh, sure. John, John's kind of floated the idea that maybe it would be an interesting for us to do to bring bring an FIG conference back here. I think he told me, and you may know this, certainly would know better than I, but I believe John told me that the one we did in 2002 was the last time there had been one in, the, in uh, North America. Oh, yes, I'm quite sure that's, that's the case. Yeah. Uh, yes, I was in uh, Washington in 2002. That was a very good conference. Yeah, we, we really had a good conference there, and, and um, that was a, a Congress, as will the 22 one be. So uh, we've I don't know if the U.S. has ever actually sponsored a working week. Um, I know John and I have had a lot of conversations with people, and John's been on the radio show a few times, and we've sort of explained the, the process in FIG where they hold a, a Congress every four years, and and then uh, do working weeks in between and lots of other meetings. It's it's hard for me to keep up sometime with all the things they're doing because <laughs> I get notifications all the time that a particular group is going to meet or a commission is going to meet or um, or whatever, and it's just really a uh, an interesting group of folks. Yes, you're right, as well as the Congress and the working, and working weeks, which are really a mini-Congress. A lot of the commissions have uh, conferences around... Uh, various topics around the world as well, so it is very busy. 
Yeah, it sure is. And how, how did you get connected with them? Well, I got connected way back in 1977 when the conference was in uh, Stockholm. And uh, my, my roots go back to Sweden, and I always wanted to go to Sweden meet some of my relatives, and so we thought, hey, this is a great opportunity. So we, we went to Stockholm and, uh, and had a great time, and uh, even met uh, King Carl Gustav. He, uh, I think he opened the conference. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, re- I can't remember what year was it we were in Stockholm last. It was several years ago. My wife and I... Yeah, 2008. My, my wife um, went with me on that one. It was a, a glorious trip. I, I'm, I'm not... Um, from that area, or my family isn't, but I certainly enjoyed being there. It was such a great city and just a, a really good meeting. Yes, I enjoyed the Stockholm Conference as well. So with having been involved uh, since the late 70s, you must have had lots of different activities that you've been involved in over the time. Well, for the first number of years, I wasn't that involved. I just went to the Congresses. uh I believe I've been to every Congress since 1977, except for the last one in uh, Kuala Lumpur. Uh, But it was, oh, probably in Helsinki where I started to get a little bit more involved. I I, uh, ran for chair of Commission 1, but I was unsuccessful, and the candidate that did, uh, that was successful, dropped out in the middle of the term, so then I got on in 1994 in uh, Melbourne. So I've sort of been involved ever since then. And so, so when you started going, you didn't necessarily go as a representative of a society. You just wanted to go because it was in Stockholm. Is that correct? Yeah. Initially, I just went uh, uh, on my own. Uh, you're always on your own on most of these congresses uh, because <laughs> there's not funding for them. Right. But. Uh, then I started to go as the delegate for uh, for Canada on Commission One. I see. And I do, and I assume that uh, the association still supports folks going to FIG as well. Well, not always financially, but they support them as a delegate. Each right. uh, member association is asked to provide a delegate to each commission. Uh, not all countries do. But uh, I think Canada, Canada always supported uh, me as a delegate in Commission 1. Yeah, and we've been pretty fortunate here through our ACSM years and then, of course, with NSPS being who we are now. And, and we've, we've been able to support um, some people on a delegation. Of course, we have, we have a delegate, of course, and um, then several of the commissions we have pretty active people. Um, some of the others not so active, but quite a few of the, of the commissions. Commission 1 being fairly active. I was actually involved in it for a while, and it just got harder and harder for me to to do all the things I was doing and, and try to keep up with what was going on in any kind of an active way. Um, I hate trying to do something if I can't give it give it everything it deserves. And, uh, and there's so much to do there and so many things going on that uh, it's hard to keep up sometimes. I think that's the case country. You always want busy people that are really actively engaged in their own country uh, to be delegates on the various commissions, but yet they're the people that are very pressed for time. So it's quite often very difficult to take a week out of your life and go to some exotic place and uh, to a working weed or a congress. But it's uh, yeah, very, very rewarding, uh, I, yeah, I must say. Yeah, I would agree. 
that certainly is. I don't know if we were getting some interference or if my phone was going crazy there, but can you still hear me okay? Yes, I'm hearing you loud and clear. Okay. Sometimes my phone gets a little wacky. Well, you are you from, uh, grew up in Alberta, I suppose? Yes, born and bred here. And I see that uh, from the information you sent me, you, you went to Southern Alberta Institute of Technology and graduated and then got into the surveying business. I guess, I don't know, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit how that happened. Sometimes here in the U.S. people get into the surveying business by accident. Um, but it sounds like you may have planned your path. Well, yes and no. I, I took a year of engineering at the University of Alberta, and uh, then I happened to be working in uh, Waterton Park, actually, which is an international peace park right on the border, international with uh, Glacier Park in Montana. And uh, we were just on the engineering survey crew, and I happened to be seconded to uh, uh, Matt Weir, who was a Dominion land surveyor, doing the boundary survey of Waterton, redoing the boundary survey. And I was so impressed when he took out his spade and dug and found a, an old iron post hole or a wooden post hole or something and decided that was the boundary. And that was a bit of detective work, and uh, that really impressed me. So the following year, I went went to SATE and uh, continued on in the surveying profession that way. And I, as being a, a, an Alberta surveyor and then eventually a Canada land surveyor, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how those two things work. Uh, as you know, in, in the U.S., we're licensed in a particular state, or we could be licensed in any number of states if we choose to do so. Um, we don't have uh, any official, you know, like a U.S. surveyor, or I guess maybe people who get involved with public land states might qualify for that uh, to some degree, but still you have to be licensed in every state. So is the, the Canada Land Surveyor license, is it a broader thing? Well, no, it's really just a different jurisdiction. Of course, there's the ten provinces, but then there are the three territories, and the three territories are considered federal lands as well as all of the national parks and the Indian reserves. So a Canada land surveyor is licensed to survey on Canada lands, which is the Indian Reserves, National Parks, and the Three Territories. I see. I guess the only thing that comes to mind, well, a couple of things maybe that's sort of an equivalent to that here, is in Texas they have two different licenses, and one of those is similar to what you're talking about. It's just in Texas, but it's to survey Texas state lands. Uh, so it sounds like that's sort of a similar thing. Uh, of course, in your case, it's for um, just not just one state, but for the territories in, in general. Yes, it's a very similar situation. Uh, a Canada land surveyor has no authority to survey on uh, provincial lands in Alberta, for instance. I see. You have to be an Alberta land surveyor. So it's possible that one could be a Canada land surveyor but not be licensed in one of the provinces. Oh, very definitely. And uh, I suspect there are probably a fair number of them, particularly the ones that are resident, per, for instance, in Whitehorse, Yukon, or Yellowknife Northwest Territories. They probably just practice in, in that particular territory. Although I think yeah. you'll find a lot of dual commissions with uh, CLSs. Right, right. And I don't know, um, unless people live along the borders with the provinces being the size they are, you may not have as many 
what I call cross-border surveyors, maybe as we do. I, I know folks who hold multiple licenses in different states in the U.S., and uh, that's kind of interesting. I always wonder how they keep up with all that stuff. We have uh, a fair number, particularly, uh, as you indicate, near the borders. Uh, Lloyd Minister, Saskatchewan, is right. Is actually the city is half in Alberta, half in Saskatchewan. So I think probably all the surveyors that are resident there have both commissions. Uh, but uh, you're, you're quite right. Uh, a lot of them just have uh, one or two provincial commissions or a provincial commission and a CLS commission. Right. And that, that makes makes good sense. And, of course, the ones who live along the borders, that, that makes sense as well. And we're 15 seconds away from our first break, by the way, so we'll, I won't get into our next topic too heavily before we go to that break. So let's, uh, just, just let's go ahead. That, and, uh, with the economy uh, changing, particularly in Alberta, where we have the boom and bust cycle. I, I hate to interrupt you, but we do need to take our break. Sorry. We'll come back. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.seanstedt.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. As we were going to the break, Ken, you were talking about, we, well, actually we were talking about um, cross-provincial work, similar to what we do here in the U.S., cross-state work, and, and the licensing structure and all of that. And you were beginning to talk about the economy driving people from one place to another. I was curious if you have any information about or have I've heard any stories about this latest downturn, at least we it's been bad here, as, as everybody knows. But what I'm hearing from so many surveyors here in the States is that 
particularly on the technician level, when things got so bad this last time, people left or had to be let go just because of, of no work. But we're having a real struggle now because they're not coming back. Do you seen any of that in, in Canada, or have you heard about it? Well, yes, I think that happens in every uh, boom and bust cycle. When things go bust, a lot of people actually leave the profession. They get established in something something else, and uh, it's very difficult to get them back. Uh, you're starting to train people uh, from scratch again. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's a fact of life. Yeah, and, and I think one of the, the changes this time seems to be, from what I'm hearing people say, is just finding people who want to come in and be trained. You know, it's, there's in the past it always seems like there was a supply of people that you could reach out to, but it seems like what I'm hearing from people, they're having a hard time even finding people who want to come in and, and begin to be trained. Well, yes, and I think that's a, a lot of the whole situation these days. There's so many different... Uh, careers and professions out there for a person to choose from, it's very difficult for a small profession like surveying to attract good people. But uh, I think, and particularly with the new name geomatics, a lot of people don't understand that. And to some extent, it's kind of intriguing. They want to know, well, what's this all about? And then a lot of people say, well, surveying, well, that's just the guy standing on the road. But when they understand what surveying really is, then it's much more uh, interesting for them. And I think that's one of the things we have to do as a profession is get out and mark their profession a little bit more. Yeah, and, and that's that's a big push here, um, not only from the perspective of finding available people who want to come and be trained, but just reaching out to the younger generation. We seem to continually have this dilemma going on. Uh, obviously, the, I'm sure the age of the licensee in Canada, it's probably not a lot different. The average age is not a whole lot different than it is here. It's in the late 50s somewhere. And so we always have this discussion. I'd be interested in your perspective on this. We always have this conversation about how we're going to replenish the, the professional ranks and get people coming into the profession. And we have X number now, and are, are there going to be enough people? On the other hand, with everything that's going on technology-wise, there's an argument to be made, I suppose. Do we are we going to need as many? Um, and I don't, I don't think I know the answer to that. But I'd be interested in your perspective on it. Well, I don't think any of us have all the answers. But we've been very fortunate in Alberta in the last number of years that because it's been such a, a good economy that we've got a lot of younger people into the profession, and a lot of it we got a hand to the University of Calgary program as well. Uh, a lot of people are coming through there. And even people are coming from New Brunswick to Alberta. So we've got a lot of younger people. So we've really reduced the uh, average age down from what it used to be. Uh, you said the average age was in the 50s. That's probably similar to what it is in most provinces in Canada. But we've been very fortunate to bring that down in Alberta in the last uh, 10, 15 years. And that's really good. And, and you folks have, I think, made a good model one of the one of the things we complain about here all the time is the the concept of and complaints probably not the right word that's a little strong perhaps but we we talk about um the the requirement for higher levels of education for people to get into the profession and some people like that idea some people don't like that idea 
and of course with things being as they are now, wondering where the next generation is coming from, the argument comes back up again, well, are we being too stringent? But it, it seems to me that the path you guys have taken seems to work pretty well. Well, it does work pretty well. We have the four-year four degree program. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have many of those programs in Canada. We really just have uh, three, uh, uh, University of Calgary, University of New Brunswick, and Laval University, which is French, although the British Columbia Institute of Technology has recently institu- instituted a uh, degree program, although I think there's some difficulties with that now through the loss of instructors. But we also have quite a strong technical institute uh, program in, I think, all of the provinces, and there's always the opportunity for those people to go through the two- or three-year tech- three uh, technical program and uh, write some extra examinations and qualify. That's sort of the, the hard way to do it, but there's still some that do that. Right. And you mentioned instructors. that We're... We're suffering the same kind of situation with the instructors as we are with the practitioners. The age of the instructors is is older as well, and and we we haven't been creating people to take their place. Uh, we don't have a lot of of institutions here where people can actually go and prepare to to get the doctorates that most of the schools are looking for now. So, again, that adds to the dilemma. You have an educational system, but are are you going to have the qualified professors to make sure that that it stays strong? Well, that's correct, and the economy also also works against uh, the adding professors too. Because when the economy is real strong, a lot of the graduates go into uh, a surveying practice and and don't continue on into academia. So, it's a difficult situation. It certainly is, and and I don't, I'm not sure because it seems to be a relatively new phenomenon here, but. I'm not sure how these two things, all these things are connected, but we're beginning to see some activity, discussions, not any real actions yet necessarily, where our, even at our federal government or our state government level, they're beginning to review whether or not licenses are required. And it's not just professional licenses for surveying, engineering, architecture, those kind of things. As you, you may or may not have this case where you are, but in, in our states we license pretty much everything from whether you do somebody's toenails right all the way up to whether you design their building right. Um, and so there seems to be a, a big push now at almost every level of government to to ask the question, is it really necessary for certain people to be licensed to do these activities? Well, anytime that comes up, of course, it it, it frightens the the technical professions like us, because obviously we we believe that people need to be licensed to do what we do, but you're afraid you're going to get caught up in the in the fray, the excitement of, oh, let's do away with these licenses. People don't really need to have those. And I don't know if you've been experiencing any of that, but it's kind of a little frightening. I don't know that we've experienced that recently. Uh, I do recall back in the early 50s, there was a big push uh, saying, well, hey, you don't need to license surveyors. You can just hire somebody and give them two weeks training type of thing. But uh, that I don't think is uh, is there anymore. But it sort of goes in spurts. You get a, some kind of a problem with any one of the professions, and all of a sudden there's a uh, professional investigation that looks at all the professions and uh, decides whether we need, to, we need to change things or not. And usually those have been fairly positive in the, uh, in the final outcome, 
and they've also produced some very good uh, professional regulation reports, sort of analyzing the whole theory of professional regulation. So it's a little trying at first, but it usually ends up to be positive in the end. And do do the does the national organization and the provincial organizations, from what I see when I come and visit, or from the materials I get from from you you guys? Um, it, it almost seems to me that the, the organizations themselves are perhaps stronger in terms of taking action and being part of all of that discussion than sometimes we might be here. Um, but I've always been impressed. I see papers written and, and all kinds of articles out about these kind of things in some of the publications, and I've always been impressed by the fact that there seems to be a, a, a commitment, if you will, uh, broader than just a, a few people uh, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe a few people are doing all the work, but but it seems to me that it, that maybe it's broader than what we experience here sometimes. Well, actually, it's it's quite different. I've been to quite a number of uh, American uh, state organizations, as well as your your national organizations as well, and regional organizations like Westpad. But your your meetings are structured so differently than ours. Ours, we have a three day meeting, and one day is seminar and the other two days is straight business meeting. So we get a lot more of our people involved in committees and things like that, whereas your meetings are mostly seminar and a very short business meeting. So there's quite a a difference there. Now, mind you, a lot of it is in uh, our professional organizational structure, whereas you have the state state, uh, state governmental organizations that do your licensing and discipline, whereas here the professional association is mandated to do the the uh, initial licensing and registration and discipline and everything. So our members have to be much more involved in a broader array of, uh, of uh, activities, and maybe that's the difference. It could very well be, actually, because um, even with the membership that we have through our, and we have a joint membership program now with all but two of the, of the state societies, but even with all of that, nationally, we only attract state and and national combined about half of the licensees who even belong to our associations, much less, much less are active. And based on the way you guys act, uh, you're structured, I'm assuming you probably have a higher percentage than that. Uh, yes, it's not uncommon for us to get 70 or 75% of our members out to an annual meeting. Uh, I don't know what what your percentages are. Now, mind way you, lower our, than that. <laughs> yeah, the size of our membership is probably much smaller on a per state per province basis than uh, yours is. Like I believe now we have about 400 members in Alberta for uh, four million population, whereas I think in a similar state you probably would have uh, two or three times that many licensed members. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the The number of license holders um, is is fairly large when you look at the charts we get from the national organization, the licensing organizations, um, and and you're right. There are more people in the states, and as I said, then when you compare that number to the people who actually participate in the state society, it's it drops down to around a, a half of that number. And I, I think that, just from my personal opinion, I think that hurts the profession because. Not that people are worse as practitioners, it's just that you don't have that engagement. 
Yes, and I think that's one of the reasons we don't have a mandatory continuing education program is because we do have such involvement of our members in the seminars we have and our annual meetings and the committees and everything. And we've had a continual debate on the need for mandatory continuing education. And I think it's always aimed at, well, we got to get those the 25% that don't come out, we got to get them educated. Absolutely. We need to go to break again, so we'll pick up on that when we come back. Okay. Want to know if your Shonstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Shonstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. This is Michael Connolly inviting you to listen each Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern to my show, Our Constitution, only on America's Web Radio. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And what we were talking about and earlier, marketing the we're back, so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Are we on? We're back on, yeah, go ahead, Ken. Okay, no, I was just say, saying earlier uh, when we were talking about marketing the profession to get students into the university programs and employment, our marketing is broader than that. We've got to market ourselves to the public so they understand what surveying is all about. So when they've got a boundary problem or some other problem that needs a surveyor, they know who to contact. So uh, all of our public relations, marketing, whatever you want to call it, is broad-based. And I think these kinds of shows that you're doing, uh, again, have a, uh, an aspect of marketing to the public to say, hey, well, this is what surveying is all about. Yeah, and we... We hope that we can can reach more and more people with it because that's you know it's we don't intend it to be totally um, restricted just to talking among ourselves. That really doesn't do us a whole lot of good. <laughs> um, like you say, we need to be more broad reaching, and and everybody certainly is is concerned about that for sure. Yeah, and there's a number of ways we can market. Uh, firstly, there's the educational thing where we go to. Uh, career days and that sort of thing to market specifically to potential students. There's things like uh, this radio program where you're marketing generally to the general public. 
historical organizations such as the Surveyors Historical Society and the conference in uh, the rendezvous in uh, Bellingham are great ways to advise the public of what surveying is all about. And I really have to hand it to Denny DeMeyer for the excellent job they did in putting up those uh, kiosks with uh, very informative historical displays on the surveying of the international boundary, for instance, the ones out on uh, uh, the island there on how the surveying worked on that island, and they did an excellent job. And that's and great. One of, one of the things that always comes into the discussion about this whole marketing effort is how much do we focus on the past? Because we're told that, that younger folks have shorter attention spans than than we do, although thinking back over my life, it would be really hard for anybody to have a shorter attention span than I've ever had. But nonetheless, we're, we're told that nobody's interested in history anymore. You don't need to be talking about that. But I do agree with you. I, I think it's important to lay that groundwork so people understand the importance of the profession. And not that you're going to use that same equipment or even necessarily techniques, but still it's important. And as you said, Denny and those guys and the Surveyors Historical Society in general do a, do a good job of that, I think. And I think that's one of the real interesting things about the surveying profession is really it's a very broad-based profession when you think about it. You're really involved in the history. You have to understand the history, not just as it relates to boundaries, but general history as well because it all has an implication on, on the boundaries and things. We're also very involved in the legal system through boundary law, things like that. We're involved in mathematics and computers. We're involved in art through town planning and things like that. So it's really a very broad-based profession. And I think particularly when students understand that, they see the possibility of working out the field in the, in the summertime or the wintertime even, and also some work in the office. So it's really a, an intriguing profession from my perspective. Yeah, I've always always held that same uh, same thoughts about it, and it's been just a very rewarding career for me just because... Um, and people, I, I say this all the time, people get tired of me saying on the radio show, I use the, the detective uh, mind reader puzzle worker thing as, as describe, uh, things to describe what surveyors are. Um, and, and that's true. We have to reach all those areas. I was curious, I, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, and then I didn't follow up on it, was with, with your, your boundary hunter slogan on your card, uh, I was curious what prompted you to to put that on. It's so true, but it, I'd never seen it before, so I was I was intrigued by it. Actually, you commented that your wife commented on that, thinking yeah. it was the bounty hunter. Yeah, it was my wife that came up with the idea of the boundary hunter, sort of a play on the words the bounty hunter, and like you say, it's sort of catching, and people look at it and say, "What? What the heck's a bounty hunter?" <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it came about because. Uh, I, I, in the last oh, 20 years of my career, I did a lot of adjudication, uh, I did expert witness, uh, arbitration, mediation, those sorts of things. I did a lot of research into boundary problems. So it's sort of a boundary hunter concept. So it fit very well with with what I did, and uh, I, I still I still put that on my business card, even though I retired. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's good though, but and and it does work well with the things that you you've been doing. I, um, there's a lot of talk going on these days about surveyors and the whole mediation process and who do you owe your allegiance to as the as the surveyor and can you 
try to get people together to help them solve their problems when when they arise and you identify them as a surveyor. Um, I, I'm personally one of those who thinks that's a really important role for surveyors to, because that's part of helping people. It's not just these are the facts and you figure out the rest of it kind of thing. So I, I've always thought that was a good idea. Well, that's right. And I've done a number of papers on the surveyor as a public officer. The surveying profession is, is unique in that you're maybe working for a client, but you've also got to look out for the client's neighbor as well because every boundary is not one person's boundary. It's the boundary between at least two parcels. So you've got as much of an obligation to the client's neighbor as you do to the client. And sometimes that's difficult for people to understand. But it's so true, and that's what makes the serving profession a very unique profession. We had a uh, justice of the Court of Queen's Bench, uh, spoke, pardon me, the Court of Appeal, uh, spoke to us on ethics uh, over a number of years ago in Jasper, and he made a real point of saying that the serving profession is very unique. It's very similar to uh, the profession of uh, uh, not really a lawyer, a specialized lawyer, and I can't think of the term he used, in Quebec, where they have an obligation to the public in general, not just to the client. And uh, that's what I think makes the surveying profession a true profession. I, I agree with that because of that, that responsibility to the public, oftentimes more so than almost anybody else. Because as you say, every project you do as a boundary surveyor has an impact on on the people on both sides of the line and maybe beyond that in some cases. Uh, so it does it does make it special. And I know that's one of the discussions, I won't say arguments necessarily, but that's one of the discussion points that we're looking at moving down the road when all these challenges are coming up about, well, do you need a license to do that? Can that kind of thing? Doesn't technology take over and you don't really have to do anything anymore? But that part that you just mentioned right there, regardless of how great the equipment becomes or the technology becomes, that part's never going to go away, or at least it shouldn't. No, that's right. And the concept is you follow in the original surveyor's footsteps. You've got to establish the boundary where it was originally established, not where they say it is by measurement, but where it originally was established, because people have relied on that for hundreds of years, and that's where it is. And trying to reduce everything to math um, and, and I see how that's so easy to try to attempt to do today with all of the the, the GIS we have and the, the ability to uh, superimpose uh, a, a geodetic framework, so to speak, on top of everything. And that's all well and good to help help people find the things they're looking for, but not to use the numbers to replace where the markers are supposed to be. And the whole hierarchy of evidence that our profession is based on the monument governs. It's not the measurements. It's the monument that governs, and that's so so true. And I suppose the way you guys do the the, the whole licensing structure, structure where you go through the – is articulation the right word? Or articling, is that the right term? Articling, yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've had conversations with folks about that before and, and even on the, on the show here. Um, and – it, to me, it seems different than, than our internship, as we call it, or it used to be called apprenticeship, uh, because it, I think it puts 
people in a position where they really need to focus more on those types of things rather than just the mechanics. Yes, and it really relies on the the principal instructing the article pupil on the fine points of uh, particularly uh, evaluation of evidence, things like that, things you don't necessarily learn in, in school in the theory. It's really the practical application of the theory to the situation on the ground. And recognizing that those situations, each one is unique, really. Exactly. So you, you can't just uh, set a standard and say, this is what you do in each and every case. Uh, right. And I think sometimes we, we sort of get caught up in that, trying to be too precise, if precise is the right word, in the instruction on how you do things, because it is, it is affected by the circumstances of the particular project at hand. Yes, and one thing we really rely on is the decision of uh, Justice uh, Thomas Cooley, I think, of the uh, Supreme Court of Michigan in 1858 or something, where he really talked about the hierarchy of evidence and not to use the mathematical uh, determination of the boundaries. And uh, we, we rely heavily on that, and it's repeated in a number of Canadian cases as well. Yeah, and I'd be willing to bet there are, there are any number of people out there practicing every day who never heard of Judge Cooley. Oh, you're quite right. Because it just seems as though we, we kind of go along and we do our day-to-day stuff, and that whole concept of learning from from the past, so to speak, and, and following, as you said before, in those footsteps, not just the footsteps as they trace thing, but the footsteps in how they evaluated the evidence. Exactly. Just going back to the idea of the surveyor as a public officer, uh, when I was uh, chair of Commission 1 of the uh, FIG, one of our mandates was to update the uh, FIG Code of Ethics. And uh, the original code was prepared uh, by a French uh, Frenchman, so it's sort of based on the French Catholic version of ethics. So we wanted to expand it so it was a global code of ethics. And we uh, really tried to get some of the, uh, particularly the Asian and the other cultures, to participate in, well, what really are ethical principles? So finally we came up to the one universal principle was the golden rule. And then we went on to the silver rule, which was the Hippocratic Oath. And uh, then a colleague from uh, Australia suggested with the move towards environmental concerns, and particularly with surveying, we came up with the green rule, which meant you had to look at the environmental concerns as well. So we sort of developed the code of ethics around those three principles, and then we got into the principle of the surveyor as a public officer and those types of things as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, here we are at our next break, so maybe we can pick up on that a little bit when we come back and then uh, want to talk about some of your other experiences. So we'll be right back. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. 
The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Shonsted products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.shonsted.com. Shonsted, the best just got better. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not... Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. As we go into our last segment, Ken, I would be uh, remiss and and not uh, providing to my listeners all that I had promised without asking you about your experiences when you were working in uh, in legislature. Well, yes, uh, that was very enjoyable. Uh, actually, I spent 15 years on city council, and uh, I find city council is certainly much more applicable to the surveyor's uh, area of expertise. You're dealing with local decisions, town planning, engineering decisions, things like that. But the legislature is much broader and uh, very enjoyable from an educational perspective to broaden your scope of of uh, knowledge, uh, I did get involved in a few uh, a few issues that were very relevant to serving practice. In fact, I introduced a private member's bill on uh, abolishing adverse possession. Uh, Alberta is the only uh, jurisdiction in Canada, the only Torrens land titles jurisdiction in Canada that still recognizes adverse possession. And by and large, it's caused more frustration than anything. Uh, and I introduced a bill to abolish adverse possession in Alberta. Unfortunately, it died on the order paper. It had all-party support and should have gone through. But now I'm meeting with uh, the, the uh, property rights commissioner uh, actually this week. Uh, they are proposing to reintroduce the concept of uh, abolition of adverse possession. So that's one area of the legislature I got quite involved in that was very uh, coincidental with uh, survey practice. Other so was, did, you, did I hear you say that the other provinces have abolished adverse possession? That's correct. 
other provinces that have a Torrens land title jurisdiction. I sort of qualify that. You and mentioned Torrens. Go ahead. Torrens land titles is really a, a, a government-sponsored uh, land titles system that guarantees a title. And I know in some of your previous uh, shows you've talked about title insurance. We have title insurance in Canada through a Torrens Land Titles Act, where the government guarantees title. And uh, therefore, our move into title insurance by private companies up here is somewhat uh, somewhat erroneous. It's not really title insurance. It's more process insurance. I see. So the, the title itself is... is uh Guaranteed through the the system itself is that am I understanding that correctly? Exactly correct. So that how how does that actually work? I mean, just for our audience's information. Well, it's based on uh, three principles. The mirror principle is that you look at the title, and we don't have a deed system where you have to go back through generations of deeds. You look at the title which is issued by the government. And that is that you, Kurt Summer, are owner of Lot 1, Block 2, Plan 3. And that's all that the purchaser needs to look at is that title. Now then there's also the assurance principle, whereas if there's an error made in that title, the government will guarantee the title to you. I see. And then, so, I'm just thinking here in terms of... Um, Disagreements among landowners in terms of where property lines lie, um, and and with this with assurance of title connected to to the monuments on the ground is that what is what is based well, on? Well, not really. It's only assurance of the quality of title, not the extent of title. I got it. But okay. one key part of the land title, the Torrent system, or the land title system. Uh, I think in most provinces, is that the title is based on a plan of survey. So there is a bit of a guarantee in that the survey is what is the basis for the title. So there is not really a guarantee of the extent of title, because if there's a boundary dispute, that has to be resolved separately. But there's a guarantee of the quality of title, the ownership of the title, the encumbrances on the title, that type of thing. So so therefore, because of that, that goes back to your, your statement about the adverse possession doesn't play a role because that title is, is already protected. Well, that would be my position, but adverse possession <laughs> in Alberta has been ruled based on a, course in Belize, uh, a court case in Belize that the common law of adverse possession that came from England in 1870 still applies in Alberta. Oh. I've got a long argument about that, but I won't go into it. <laughs> and, and we don't I, have enough time. I think I understood you to say that Alberta is the only province where that's true. That's correct. Yeah. Only, pro- only province in a Torrens jurisdiction. Because some... Some provinces still have a deed registry system, and adverse possession still applies in a deed registry system. I see. So the yeah. principle of the Torrens is we guarantee the title. 
but adverse possession comes into play, which nullifies the guarantee to some extent. Uh, that makes sense. Early on in this segment, you mentioned the city council. I, I personally believe that serving some time on a city council or a city planning commission or something like that is a really good education for surveyors. I agree 100%. Uh, that's how I first got into politics. I was appointed chairman of the uh, Development Appeal Board here in St. Albert. And uh, from there, I went into the Municipal Planning Commission, and then I was asked to run for council. And, of course, one thing leads to another. Yeah, I, I understand that. I was fortunate enough back years ago when I was still living in, back in the mountains in Virginia and uh, a little town called Blacksburg, which is not so little these days. It's where Virginia Tech is located. But I, I was appointed to our, it was a town council, similar situation. I was in, I was amazed, actually, and shouldn't have been surprised, but I was that there was some reluctance to a surveyor being appointed to the council, to the planning commission, because there there was a sense that there would be some kind of a bias that just because I was a professional land surveyor, I couldn't be objective. And of course, I think what that really meant was I might introduce more common sense to some of the decision making. But that's my own personal opinion. <laughs> Well, I think uh, I think that's right on. But really, a surveyor with their technical expertise can add a lot to a uh, planning commission of any of any nature. And I guess there's always a problem of a potential conflict of interest if you're a private practitioner uh, acting for one party or another. But of course, you've got to step back uh, and not get involved in those types of cases. Exactly. And and what what I learned was that if you're an honest broker and you are very objective in the way you pursue things, obviously you have your background that helps you see see how things work. But I, what I found was that a lot of the people on the commission and other people in the, the town council and, and, and what have you, even on staff, were appreciative of the fact of having that kind of a perspective in looking at the at the whatever the case may be, as long as as long as you were able to remain objective about it. Oh, exactly. And so many of our rules are based on very definitive uh, numbers, like, for instance, a side yard of one meter. Well, we go out there and measure it, and it comes out, well, you're more in feet, let's say three feet, and the measurement is 2.99 feet. Well, hey, what's a hundredth of a foot, my goodness? <laughs> you got to use a little common sense, like you mentioned earlier. And surveyors, I think, are good for using common sense. Politicians aren't. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I guess whether or not that uh, that tenth or hundredth of a foot uh, makes a difference is whatever your point of view is. <laughs> exactly. And and sometimes to be, I've seen it be used as a way to either promote or undermine some particular objective simply because of that you know, that little minute difference which is of no significance, but sometimes people tend to want to use it as a, as their springboard to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Sometimes rules are rules. <laughs> Period. Right. Yeah, that that's very true. Well we got about uh, three or four minutes left here in our uh, in our discussion. I, I if there's anything that I haven't asked about that you'd like to share with us, I'd, I'd be happy to have you do that. 
Well, I'd just like to make one uh, comment uh, relating to the rendezvous in, uh, in Philadelphia on the Mason-Dixon line uh, about two, two years ago, I guess it was. And again, I'm talking about the marketing of the profession, and I was really impressed with the job that the committee did in, in Philadelphia where they had three very public uh, situations. They erected one of the uh, state of Pennsylvania uh, tourist signs on the south south road of uh, Philadelphia, which was the starting point for Mason-Dixon's uh, survey of the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, they erected a headstone in the uh, the major cemetery in Philadelphia to uh, to Charles Mason because when uh, when he was buried there by Benjamin Franklin arranged for his burial but didn't provide a headstone and they had a one of the original survey boundary monuments used as his headstone and there was two or three hundred members of the public came out to that it was really an impressive uh, uh, function then the third one is they had uh, a ceremony at the Stargainers Stargazer Stone, uh, what, 30 miles uh, west of Philadelphia, which was just another really great public event. And I really think those sorts of things go a long ways towards making the public aware of, of uh, surveying. In fact, a lot of people in Canada, and I expect a lot of people in the United States, don't understand what the Mason-Dixon line really is. True. It's a boundary between the free states and the slave states. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a survey boundary, <laughs> and the history of the Mason-Dixon line is fantastic. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and, but you're right, all of those kind of things, we, need to, we as surveyors need to spend more time talking to people about all of those types of things that are going, have gone on throughout history and continue to go on. And So I, uh, I know we're only... 30 seconds away or so from the end, so I want to make sure I thank you for being with me and taking the time out of your day to join me today, Ken. It's been fantastic to have you on the show, and I know our audience has learned a lot from, from our conversation. Well, it's my pleasure. I, I really enjoy uh, chatting to you uh, and others about these sorts of things. Uh, we need to talk about them, and uh, uh, it's always enjoyable to share views with other people. That's very true. Will you enjoy your stay in the snow, and I'll be praying for it here on this end, and maybe we'll get it before it gets too far along. But, again, thank you for being with me today, Ken. I really appreciate it. Hopefully you'll have a white Christmas. Thanks. Merry Merry Christmas to you. Bye. Bye now. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.